0: Good morning again and welcome. If you have a Bible, you may want to turn to uh, the New Testament, to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We are continuing this morning with uh, a series on that letter and uh, picking up at the first verse of chapter 4 and working through to the sixth verse of that same chapter. Now, um, up to this point... In our series, if you've been with us, you'll know this, but up to this point in our series, we've been kind of working with the understanding that in the main, this letter was written by Paul to both describe and then defend his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the reason he's defending his ministry is because it's under attack. And it's under attack by spiritual impostors who had uh, moved into Corinth after his departure and who were presently creating all kinds of trouble there, including uh, doing things to undermine the people's confidence in Paul as their founding apostle. And so as a result, Paul is once again in a position of having to defend himself, which he's done in, in several of his letters, actually. Now, in our most recent studies, we've seen how after starting out in this letter by describing and then defending some particular decisions that he's made, Paul has shifted in the main to talking more about some of the perspectives that have guided him in the things that he's done and said as an apostle. For example, uh, one perspective that guided Paul was his conviction that the real power behind effective ministry is God and God alone working in and through ordinary people. Paul's firm belief in that shaped how he functioned in his gospel ministry. Another perspective that influenced Paul and which flowed out of the one just described was his conviction that the clearest proof of effective ministry was the changed and changing lives of people touched by that ministry. And while Paul's opponents relied on Uh, letters of recommendation to commend their ministries, Paul relied instead on living letters of recommendation. These other people, which in the end were far superior to anything that might be written on a piece of paper. Uh, Finally, we also saw how one of the marks of genuine New Covenant ministry, alongside the mark of transformed people, is the mark of freedom. Uh, The kind of freedom that can be experienced when the liberating truths of the gospel are kept in the foreground and when they begin to infiltrate and inform every area of our Christian life. Those are some of the perspectives that we've seen thus far and, Lord willing, we'll be adding to that this morning. However, before we go any further with that, let's address and acknowledge uh, our teacher this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please come now and take these words of life. And apply them to us in a way that feeds our souls. And which grows us up even more in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read to you the first two verses of chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul begins here by talking about, you know, this ministry, that's the language he uses, and by this he means a ministry that centered on and emphasized Jesus, the new covenant ministry that we saw in our study last week and which apparently was a strong contrast to what was currently being promoted by the false teachers. There seems to have been a modified version of uh, what you might call old covenant ministry going on there now, a ministry that strongly emphasized not Christ but Moses and the Mosaic Covenant. At any rate, Paul says, since we have this ministry, by the grace of God, we do not lose heart. And there's two, two things there that I want you to see. Firstly, Paul says that he has this ministry by the grace of God. And grace, as you know, by definition, is, is getting uh, that which you don't deserve. Uh, Paul is being, uh, his being saved and his being set apart in Christ was a privilege that he didn't earn uh, or deserve. He knew that. Paul knew only too well that it was only the mercy of God that stopped him in his tracks as he was on his way to persecute more and more Christians. Paul knew that what God could have done and by rights should have done was not just strike him down with blindness. God should have just struck him down, period. God should have just wiped him out on the Damascus Road, but He didn't. I and mean, amazingly, He blinded Saul, who then became Paul, and then he matched his and in doing that, he matched his spiritual blindness with actual blindness. And then God revealed to Paul his error that the Jesus that he hated was actually God's Son, was the Messiah. And so God showed him the light of truth, taking away then his spiritual blindness. And then after taking away his spiritual blindness, God took away his physical blindness as well. Indeed, this is what Paul, I think, clearly has in mind later on in verse 6 when he says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God... In the face of Jesus Christ. That's what God did in Paul's heart. But then God went even further than that with Paul. Uh, He didn't just set Paul straight on that issue. He signed him up. He set him apart. He drafted him. He commissioned him to serve alongside the other apostles. Who had also been set apart by Christ for special service. And as a result, Paul's commissioning was... Essentially, exactly the same as theirs. And it had the same authority and uniqueness, but with the special qualification that he would be God's primary apostle amongst the non-Jewish peoples of the world. And all of those events, you see, were burned into Paul's brain. They were forever a part of who he was. Paul couldn't think about God's mercy without thinking about that life-changing event. It humbled him. It amazed him. But more than that even, it, it really sort of rewired him. It completely changed not only what he did, but also why he did it. It was the spiritual equivalent of taking a car and removing the gasoline engine and replacing it with a diesel engine. What was going on under Paul's hood, so to speak, was something new and different. Before his conversion, Paul operated out of a sense of his own personal superior righteousness. And he would have seen his zealous persecution of Christians as only adding to his already impressive resume before God. But not anymore. Now Paul relied not on his righteousness, but Christ's. Now all those things that once were points of boasting for him were now, by comparison to him, regarded as filthy rags. Now what drove him was not spiritual pride anymore, not nationalistic zeal, but humility and gratitude and thankfulness and this kind of unswerving desire that others might come to know the very same mercy that he'd come to know. And so it was that Paul was driven by the mercy of God. He wasn't driven by other things, not favorable circumstances, not a ministry that experienced exponential growth. None of those things were what motivated him. What motivated him was the mercy of God that he had personally experienced. And it was because of that that he persevered. And let me just say that somewhere in there is a point of application for you and me to ask ourselves, what's in our fuel tank? What is it that drives us forward, that motivates us? Is it something about us, Uh, our goals, our recognition, our status, our position? Is it about gaining leverage? What is it? What is at the center of that orbit? Is it uh, us or is it God? His mercy, His glory, His honor. Because at the end of the day, the one fuel that would be sufficient for the journey is that, centered upon God. And the other one will leave us stranded on the side of the road. That might carry us a little way, but it will not get us there. Paul persevered. He was driven by the mercy of God. But it was more than that. Paul didn't just persevere. He persevered hopefully. He persevered without losing heart, as the passage says. There was this feeling of expectant anticipation attached to his perseverance. What kept him going was the knowledge that the God who had done so much in him and for him and through him could do that same thing again and again in and for and through other people. And one of the things, I think, even beyond all that, that demonstrated Paul's confidence, that showed that he hadn't lost heart, was not only the fact that he remained hopeful and expectant, but it's also seen in, I think, the very manner in which he carried out his ministry. The way Paul approached things, his uh, modus operandi, I believe, showed that he had not lost heart. That he was still confident that God could work and would work in the ways that he'd always worked. And that's worth reflecting on too, if only for a moment. Because the way that a person works, uh, the choices that are made, the things that are done or not done, all of those things demonstrate where a person's confidence lies. What they're trusting in. What they really believe As opposed to what they say they believe, where they think the real power for transformation and change can be found. As we've already seen, Paul believed that the real power behind effective ministry, the thing that changed people, was God Himself. And he believed that this God had revealed Himself. And thus expected his people to respond to this self-revelation, both in his written word, scripture, but more recently and more clearly through the word made flesh. That is, Jesus, as John's gospel describes him. And because Paul believed that this was what God was doing and how God was operating, that was reflected in how he, Paul, operated. It completely shaped his ministry, which as he shows here in verse 2, was committed to firstly, uh, openly stating God's truth, and then secondly, not tampering with God's truth. And what that meant for Paul, practically speaking, was that his ministry at its core involved uh, teaching and preaching and not editing the scriptures, which in his day, would have meant the Old Testament Scriptures. And further, it would have involved showing how the life and death and resurrection of Jesus were in line with those Scriptures. And a fulfillment and a focal point of those Scriptures. And it would have involved his showing how Christ was a further, and in fact, the final installment of God's self-revelation. And how Christ was the accomplisher of all of God's plans and purposes. And so again, because of God's mercy to Paul, he did not lose heart, and that confidence was reflected programmatically in the way that he ministered. But apparently the same thing could not be said for Paul's opponents. Paul seems to be clearly contrasting and distancing his own approach from theirs. And whereas Paul... Uh, Paul's approach showed a confidence, I think, in God's self-revelation. These other approaches apparently did not. As one commentator observed, Paul's language of tampering, tampering with God's word, suggests that you know any number of things were probably going on amongst these false teachers. There may have been some who were very selectively choosing certain scriptures, while very deliberately avoiding others. There were likely some who were taking verses and asserting that they meant things they could not possibly have meant, if read in context. Or who were majoring on minors, asserting, and, uh, and uh, on the reverse of the other thing, asserting that sometimes things uh, meant things that um, didn't mean what they should have meant. And so whatever those, but however it happened, whatever those specifics were, The general description is, I think, revealing enough, right? They were behaving in ways that were underhanded and disgraceful. They were being cunning. They were tampering with God's word, all of which demonstrates a clear lack of confidence in God's self-revelation and at the same time demonstrates a greater confidence in one's own judgment and abilities, And even more than that, it demonstrates that a person is working according to some agenda other than God's. And most likely to their own agenda. Which results in their editing God's revelation whenever it begins to clash with their personal goals and purposes. That, I believe, is what's behind Paul's words in verse 5 when he says, "...for what we proclaim is not ourselves." but Jesus Christ as Lord. That is how Paul characterizes what his opponents are doing. They're adjusting God's word to conform with their own agendas, and as a result, they're not promoting Christ. They're promoting themselves at Christ's expense, at the expense of truth. And that same error is alive and well today. Uh, I believe that uh, confidence in God's word, even within um, evangelicalism, is uh, at an all-time low, personally. And our practices reveal our lack of confidence. Our practices show that we have, in many places, lost heart. And do not trust that God's merciful revelation of himself is sufficient. I see this uh, in a lot of different ways. I see this in the uh, overwhelming preference, for example, for thematic preaching, over-expository preaching in the vast majority of our pulpits. And believe me, I'm not saying this to prop myself up. There are so many people who do this so much better than me. I know that. But regardless of our differing abilities, we all do it essentially for the same reason, because we have not lost confidence in God's Word. And please hear me, I'm not saying that everyone that practices thematic preaching has lost confidence in God's Word. I'm not saying there's no place even for that. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that whenever I see a situation where expository preaching that is working through books of the Bible rather than skipping around here and there, when I see a situation where expository preaching almost never happens... I want to know why. I want to hear the explanation for why it is clearly being avoided. Because it worries me. But that's not the only thing that worries me. It worries me when there's a very selective approach to the Scriptures. Either by teaching maybe only the New Testament and virtually ignoring the Old Testament. Or when difficult or controversial passages are consistently skipped over. Or when they aren't skipped over, but instead twisted so that they're alleged to mean what they clearly don't. In all those ways and more, the problem of tampering with the scriptures that existed in Paul's day is very much alive and well in our day. God's word is still being handled in underhanded and cunning ways. It's still being tampered with. And whenever you see that happening, I believe you're watching... The outworking of a fundamental lack of confidence in God. And at the same time, a foolish overconfidence in self. And in worldly ways of thinking and behaving. Let's read a little further, verse 3 and on. Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers... To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servants for, Christ, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, as one writer has noted, it may not be immediately obvious to the reader why Paul seems, in some ways, to kind of abruptly change direction here. Talking about his gospel being veiled. But on reflection, I think there's at least two reasons for what he says here. The first reason is that he just finished saying, in 2 Corinthians 3.14, we saw this last week, that to this day... When they read the Old Covenant, the veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. In other words, he's just finished talking about how even when the Old Testament Scriptures are presented faithfully, that in itself does not automatically result in people seeing Christ in those Scriptures. Indeed, it is only when they turn to Christ that the veil is lifted. And then, as a result, they are enabled to see and read those same scriptures in all their fullness. And so, because this whole topic of veiling is already in the air, because of these things he's already said, Paul seems to feel the need to say a bit more about that. The other reason for what he says here is that, uh, again, as some um, commentators have suggested, Paul is likely addressing a possible point of criticism. Either criticism that has taken place or else criticism that he sees as likely to take place, or both. And the criticism would have been along the following lines. Uh, Paul's opponents might be looking at his ministry and making an issue over an obvious fact. And that is that hordes of people were not responding to his open presentation of the truth. Paul wasn't being inundated by massive crowds of people that were converting. There wasn't any sort of amazing revival taking place. Yes, people were responding, absolutely. Uh, lives were clearly changing, in some of them in big and obvious ways. The church was growing, and it was spreading and taking hold, absolutely. But even so, more people were saying no than were saying yes especially amongst the Jews. The very people who should have been more familiar with the Scriptures, who, might, who you might have thought would have responded most readily to the Gospel, were not responding very well at all. And so it may have been that that sort of criticism was circulating. Some people were saying, in essence, you know, Paul, if your approach is the right way to go, if what you're saying about Christ is true if you are, through this open teaching of the truth, commending yourself to everyone's conscience, as you say, asking them to see for themselves, to check these things out, and they are, then why is there so little response? If your approach is superior to ours, why isn't it more effective than it is? As we've seen, Paul's already put forward one reason why this is the case. Because... People's hearts and minds are veiled. Until they turn to Christ, they're not capable of seeing rightly the fullness of what the Scriptures are saying about Christ. That's one thing that's going on. But it's not the only thing. There's something else going on. There's another factor in all of this, and it is, simply put, the work and activity of the evil one, of Satan. In other words, the problem is not only to be located within people, it's also to be found and is exaggerated by the work of something outside of them. There are other forces at work here, namely the very real influence and interference that is affected supernaturally by Satan. Paul offers this up as another reason for the limited response to the gospel and as an answer to his critics. Now this uh, factor, the very real Uh, interfering work of Satan raises a number of matters worth exploring, if only for a moment. Um, For starters, it should be pointed out that it is, in fact, Satan that is being referred to here, even though that name is not used. Paul refers to him here as the God of this world, uh, language that we find in other places in the New Testament, like John 12, 14, and 16 where Jesus uses the same kind of language to clearly reference Satan, who, for a time, has a measure of authority and is temporarily allowed to operate within a certain sphere and within certain limits, and all of that within God's overall plan and purpose. Another place where this is clearly seen, I think, is when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, in Luke chapter 4, and you... Hear the description there of Satan's role and his authority in that interchange that takes place. And so this is Satan being talked about here. And one of the things that he does, as Paul says, is blinds the minds of unbelievers. To prevent them from seeing the light of the gospel, from seeing the glory of Christ. Essentially from seeing Christ for who he truly is. Now, when you start talking about the activity of Satan with reference to an all-powerful and all-knowing God, you need to realize that you're dealing with things that involve a certain amount of mystery. Because at the end of the day, the question of the relationship between Satan and God is just an extension of the question concerning the relationship between God and evil in general. And we don't have the time, nor is this actually the proper passage to deal with that subject at any length this morning. However, so as not to leave you hanging completely, let me offer a couple bullet points here. Please notice that Satan here is blinding the minds of unbelievers. He's not blinding the minds of believers. And further, he cannot prevent people from becoming believers. That is not his prerogative. He can create difficulty, he can harass, he can hinder, but he cannot ultimately prevent unbelievers from becoming believers, nor can he displace believers from their secure position in Christ. Because in order to do that, he'd have to be more powerful than God himself. And exhibit A of this, of course, is the Apostle Paul, who for a time was an unbeliever himself. Who for a time would have been numbered right along with those who were perishing. But then God stepped in and opened Paul's eyes to see the light of the gospel. To see the glory of the Lord Jesus. And Paul's blindness was taken away. And all of Satan's efforts to prevent that were brushed aside easily. And there was nothing he could have done to stop it. Which brings up the second bullet point, and that is the fact of God's sovereignty over all that happens. Including the distinctions between people regarding their responsiveness or otherwise to Him. Again, this is not the passage or the time to discuss that at any length. But what we're talking about here is the kind of thing that Paul goes into more fully, for example, in Romans 9-11. through And accordingly, I would commend those passages to you for your own reflection. And after you read them, please direct all your questions to Woody or Andrew. And they will make anything that is not clear, crystal clear for you. Which leads to the last bullet point on this matter. And that is simply to point out that in light of the truths of God's sovereignty that Paul expands upon elsewhere, we have to understand the comments made here, as Paul talking about the work of Satan as the proximate or utilitarian cause of things that have a more distal or ultimate grounding in the greater purposes of God himself. And so when it comes to thinking about Satan, or the God of this age, as the passage puts it, on the one hand, we have to understand that we're talking about something or someone That is real. And that is neither powerless nor inactive. On the other hand, we also have to keep in mind that Satan is created. He's not divine. He's not all powerful, but at best, some powerful. And in comparison with God, extremely limited. And we have to remember that he is, as Piper says... Uh, Piper actually tweeted this yesterday on his uh, phone. He said, uh, "He said Satan is on a very short leash and can do no more and go no further than God's sovereign purposes will allow." And so, what we've seen so far this morning is Paul talking about how, because of God's mercy, mercy to both save him and then commission him, he does not lose heart. He's hopeful. He's expectant. And this, alongside some of the other things we've seen, is one of the perspectives that motivates Paul. It's one of the convictions out of which he is continually operating. And that perspective then affects the way he practices or carries out his ministry. Not trusting in himself, but, but in a way which shows his confidence in God's self-revelation through his scriptures and, most importantly, through his Son. And because he is confident in God... He presents and proclaims these things openly and fearlessly. Not tampering or adjusting or obscuring or selectively presenting the truth in any way. And the fact that his ministry and message are resisted and rejected by many is not at all a reflection of their genuineness or authority. But instead, evidence of the sobering reality that his ministry is not unopposed. And that even as he labors so that people might see the light of the gospel, there is another, the God of this world, who is laboring at the same time to prevent that light from being seen. And who for a time has a measure of success in that regard. But the extent and the duration of that success, as evidenced by the story of Paul's own life, is not something that is Satan's prerogative, but remains firmly within the control and overarching sovereignty of a kind and merciful god let's pray father in heaven you showed great mercy to our brother paul and you have set him apart you'd set him apart for your service and father you've shown us the very same mercy and you've set us apart to your service as well Please help us to respond like our brother Paul with confidence that what you have done in us and for us, you are willing to do in and for others. And Father, help us to then serve you by serving others and to carry out our ministry, whatever it is, in ways that show that we too are confident in you. Help us to have the same confidence in your revelation of yourself. So much so that it affects the way we minister to others. Help us to have the courage and the trust to take these truths that have shaped us. And to inject them into our lives and into our conversations. Into our interactions at home, at work, at school, in the shopping mall, wherever we are. Father, would you please honor yourself by working through these appointed means, as only you can do. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Now, receive the morning offering for those who'd like to support the work of this church.